You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Where are the aisles? The projectionist asked Micha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzchak Kolokowski, and we're here to explore a genre which it's, you know, sort of, it's like shooting fish in a barrel because there's so many of these films um, and all of them sort of have an inbred um, likability factor. And those, these are, I would call the boxing films, pugilistic films, films about uh, people trying to make it as a boxer or um, aspire to take the heavyweight championship or something like that. Whether it's the heavyweight or lightweight or welterweight, um, it probably numbers in the hundreds and hundreds of films where boxing was a key element uh, in these films. And there are some Yitzchak that you have to say are sort of like uh, towering classics of the genre that uh, people, everybody knows, if whether it's you know Gar- John Garfield we mentioned last week and Body and Soul, um, Kirk Douglas uh, in Champion, um, or probably what's the most celebrated, beautiful boxing film, uh, Raging Bull, uh, Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull. Uh, but I discovered a boxing film that I really was not that aware of. Um, and I, I have to tell you, watching it, I think it probably in my mind, and that's, you know, including Rocky and all these other films that people, Cinderella Man and um, so many other celebrated films that people love so much and that spawned sequels like Creed and Rocky, it's Gentleman Jim. Um, and it's, it was a f- favorite films of its star, uh, Errol Flynn. Now, I talked about Errol Flynn a couple of weeks ago. You might remember in Footsteps in the Dark, which was a flop. This film actually was very popular. And even though Errol was not um, in an old-fashioned uh, costumes like Robin Hood or some sort of swashbuckling way or, or playing a cowboy of the Old West, um, he was still playing a figure out of history. He was playing Jim Corbett. The film was made in 1942. Uh, the director was someone that uh, um, uh, he he really loved uh, Raul Walsh. Uh, it seems like uh, the director that I talked about last week uh, on The Seawolf, Michael Curtis, Michael Curtis or Michael Curtis was someone that had worked with Errol Flynn and Flynn and he did not get along. Raul Walsh became one of Flynn's favorite directors. And this film also has someone who became one of Flynn's favorite co-stars was Alexis Smith. Most people know Yitzhak Flynn from his his swashbuckling Robin Hood and uh, uh, adventures with his co-star or Captain Blood, his co-star Olivia de Havilland. And they were sort of like a a team in Hollywood. But I think, although I'm not so sure about this, I think he actually enjoyed working with the younger Alexis Smith more, although she definitely doesn't have the acting chops of Olivia de Havilland or Joan Fontaine, her sister. But she seemed to be perfect in terms of the chemistry between her and uh, Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn loved this film because, in a way, it was a story, something about him. He was also sort of a scalawag and a guy who was sort of like pushing himself larger than life. 
the same way Jim Corbett was. Um, the book is, the film is based somewhat on Jim Corbett's uh, fanciful biography of himself. You know, in those days, everybody promoted lies all about themselves, whether they were famous authors or famous boxers or everyone. So unlike the film I talked about last week, where we, I talked about the heavy burden of trying to stay um, loyal to a famous uh, book with characters, <laughs> the, the screenwriters were able to do whatever they wanted in with Gentleman Jim. Um, <laughs> they could play loose with the facts as, long, as, as much as possible. Um, the one thing that had to be constant was the great standoff between Jim Corbett and John L. Sullivan. Um, and, uh, you know, again, this was, of course, a time uh, that the Irish were not only the most um, numerous immigrants, but in many ways were so colorful in terms of what they were doing in terms of putting their imprint on American life. Uh, Flynn, of course, was an Australian, but he had boxed as a young person. And one of the things that uh, many of his biographers speak about was that he enjoyed this film because he also did most of the stunts Whereas in many films, and even Flynn's later films, you can see that it's some stuntman. Here, he actually took his shirt off and was dancing around the ring and actually read up on Sullivan's techniques and, and tried to actually give them uh, a, a real embodiment. Did, did, did he box kangaroos in Australia? <laughs> well, he definitely was agile. Yitzchok. And uh, I don't know if he was too successful of a boxer, but as, as, as we're going to be talking about, boxing in many ways was sort of like uh, the, the, the way we would talk about a paper route or a kid flipping burgers as sort of the way you broke through um, intense poverty to actually get your first job and first chance at some sort of money. And I think many actors and, and people uh, of girth and strength like Errol Flynn, uh, you know, start out that way. So this was, a, a, but also what he loved about the film was because uh, Jim Corbett sold himself. James Corbett was selling himself. In fact, what the film has so much fun with is how these boxers moonlighted as media stars. And, and Corbett was a very handsome man. And this was a time that still, still photography and actually the, um, the embryonic movie industry took note. And there were a number of films, although I can't tell you exactly, but there are actually some films that still remain of actual footage, silent, of course, of Gentleman Jim Corbett in the ring. So the, 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 these were the, uh, the celebrities. And the film does a great job of capturing that spirit. It starts in San Francisco, and it actually has a lot of fun with the fact that although boxing was uh, outlawed in many states, and part of the reason was, was because of its violent nature, everybody wanted a part of it. Even the, the judges and most aristocratic citizens. Now, of course, the, the movie makes sure to let you know that in California, Today's aristocrat was yesterday's stowaway on some sort of uh, on some sort of caravan or some gold digger or some guy or a gold digger or somebody who was who was prospecting, and because it's almost like it was the it was the American dream where everybody you can become someone. And part of what drives Gentleman Jim Corbett and this character in the film is to get into that society of the Olympic Club and to actually show himself. And Errol Flynn doesn't mind 
being sort of an obnoxious fellow. And they all talk about him being obnoxious, like the other people who want him to be showed up. And, um, you know, Flynn was also known as a very brash, obnoxious guy. So he didn't mind playing this character that really aligned so much with who he was. Uh, on the other hand, the, it, the, the film works as a comedy, unlike a lot of the boxing films. So Rocky, of course, which I, I guess you've seen, <laughs> you know, does have a lot of comic elements, you know, with Stallone um, and, and, and uh, you know, sort of developing as a human being. Um, and a lot of, I would say, a lot of sophomoric elements in terms, of course, Burgess Meredith, who plays his, his Jewish coach. Um, this film really retains such a high spirit. Now, I told you, again, it was, it was, I, I, it was probably produced uh, before the, the America entered into war. But you, you, unlike other films that we've talked about, that it was sort of, there were subliminal messages about, you know, uh, you know the American life and, and sort of like there were semi-propaganda films for why we should accept war. This movie is just a good time. Um, there are, Roll Walsh stages a number of incredible scenes where, you know, they're fighting on Fisherman's Wharf in some place in, in, on, on the water. And he does great work with his crane shots. Um, and he also, the casting, besides Alexis Smith, who plays sort of this, you know, this, this woman of, of, who has money, who in a way uh, Corbett or Errol Flynn wants to try to impress uh, and constantly bumps into, uh, and, you know, that, that's sort of like they play off of each other as sort of, you know, uh, rivals, not rivals, but ne a nemesis of one to the other. But clearly there's a tremendous attraction uh, between them. There's also uh, a number of, I would say, sort of some stock Warner players, Jack Carson. Now, Jack Carson um, uh, was a really a, 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 a really super successful second banana uh, in a number of films. Uh, you know, he, you know, many people remember him uh, from A Star is Born um, and uh, Mildred and Mildred Pierce, where he sort of had his largest role playing opposite Joan Crawford. But he usually was cast as sort of like the semi-likable schlubby guy who was sort of the best friend of the hero. And he does a very fine job here. And in, 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 in fact, part of the charm of the Corbett character is that despite how gauche and uncouth the Carson character is, and you know uh, uh, the the Jim uh, Jim gentleman Jim knows how to dance around not only the ring but can also impress people. He stands up for his buddy and won't let, let his buddy be pushed around and be considered someone not worthy. And there's a number of, of great scenes of friendship and understanding between them. And, and, and in many ways, Carson, you know, has a mean streak in some of the other films that he was within, The Strawberry Blonde with James Cagney and some other films where you see his nice guy becoming cruel. In this film, he just plays it as a super nice schlub. And, you know, he's, he just love having him around. Another lovable character is someone who I spoke about, if you remember, uh, who was in Footsteps in the Dark, Alan Hale Sr., and in this film, Alan Hale plays uh, Corbett's father. <laughs> and uh, along with a, a wife and two other brothers, again, whether these were really part of Corbett's family or not, the names I know were not correct. And they are this fighting Irish family, and he's got a livery stable. And, you know, Alan Hale, there's, there's, Alan Hale does a couple of Irish jigs. 
Um, and it's just wonderful to see him and the chemistry that really exists between Alan Hale and almost all the other characters. It might be one of Alan Hale's. I think both Alan Hale and Jack Carson really, you know, sort of, if they would want to uh, have their Olam Haba, <laughs> like what represented their greatness in, in the acting field, I would say this film is a great uh, uh, asp- is, is a great exemplar of for both of them. Uh, as far as that goes. Um, so it's really fun watching them. The uh, the other character actor who I think might have had the role of his lifetime here, and again, oh, I talked about Errol Flynn loving this role, was Ward Bond. Now, Ward Bond, you might know, was a staple of John Ford's Westerns. Um, and he, he generally played a character of, of great humor, a character that didn't necessarily have everything in the in the mental department, but in other times, of course, he, you know, I, I talked about the film that he played, um, where he played the Mormon uh, leader, uh, along with Ben Johnson, the film, uh, a John Ford film that we talked about a couple of months ago, <laughs> must be about a year or two ago, a year or so ago. Um, and in this film, he plays John L. Sullivan. And you know, he was clearly very well put together. But part of what the film is trying to underscore is that Sullivan represents old style boxing, boxing even before there were gloves, boxing that you were just punching and brawling, the boxing that got the women's league uh, up in arms, the boxing that was considered brutal and horrible that left people, um, uh, you know, beaten to a pulp. And the film really deals with the idea, although in a humorous way, how from Sullivan to Corbett, that Corbett unseating Sullivan as the heavyweight champ really meant that boxing was going into a different era, an era where where grace and speed was more important than being a brawler. And uh, the uh, and, and as I said, Ward Bond inhabits that character. He inhabits him as a personality, as a celebrity. In fact, Alan Hale is so excited that he was able to, to shake the hand of John L. Sullivan. Now, all of this is, is, is it's fancifully done, but it's based on the truth that Sullivan was a national hero, John L. Sullivan, and as was Corbett. Um, and uh, the climax of the film, of course, what it builds up to is the fact that as Corbett becomes more successful and amazingly, uh, you know, he sort of ends up falling into the boxing uh, arena. Um, he's abetted by when he wakes up drunk uh, in Salt Lake City. It turns out, you know, even though that's the home of the Mormons, I don't know what they were doing boxing there. Maybe I guess there was boxing going on anyway. But um, it turns out that Bill Frawley is there. Now, you know, he, of course, is Fred Mertz from I Love Lucy, and here he is playing uh, Corbett's manager who gets him the fights, who's with him in the ring. And, of course, unlike the film that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, Footsteps in the Dark, where Frawley plays a complete idiot whose, whose whole purpose is to just say stupid things like he doesn't understand what's going on, in this film, Frawley also it might be Frawley's best Hollywood role as well. Um, you know, he does have a role, as you might remember, in Miracle 34. Frawley is um, uh, Jack Delaney, I think is his name, another sort of an Irish guy who's involved in managing uh, Corbett. And uh, he actually has a chain to him. So I, I have to say, 
that it really is a film that goes by quickly. And even though you sort of know what's going to happen, um, it really, in a way, avoided all some of the later tropes of some of these boxing films um, uh, in terms of you know, the, the tropes of, well, you know, he got beaten and he had to learn his lesson and he had to change or, uh, or something like that. Um, you know, many films where the, where the his success is going to spoil him and he's got to, he's got to learn his lesson and he has to get, he has to, has, he has to have humility. And it also um, uh, has some pretty exciting uh, scenes of boxing. There's a there's a Polish fighter. It seems like he fights in the middle uh, before he gets to John L. Sullivan, and it's a it's a humdinger of a uh, uh, of a fight, and it's really like every single fight scene. As I said, um, you enjoy it and you're anticipating uh, the next one. The uh, there's also a to me maybe. Today, rom-coms and other sorts of situation comedies have made us dull to the idea of what male-female attraction is. But in this film, um, Errol Flynn's character, as I said, Gentleman Jim, and the Alexis Smith character, uh, who is this, I'm forgetting her name, but I know that she was the, uh, she was, she ended up giving him $10,000 for the side bet in order to make the money to be able to get to New Orleans. And she, of course, was always watching him through the, through his, his rise and sort of like loving him and hating him. Uh, and, and there's a, a scene towards the end of the film where um, Sullivan goes to the celebratory party, spoiler here, where, um, Corbett beats him. And she sees that despite being a braggart, he was very kind to the former champ. And he says to him, you know, 10 years ago, you probably would have beaten me. And it's a, it's, it's an honor to take over the belt from you. And she saw the great uh, spirit that he had, despite everything else, despite um, his, his desire for attention, despite the fact that he talked too, too much for his own good, that he was essentially a decent person who, who loved life. And she, she takes him out and says to him that I know between us that you like me more than I like you, but I know that I love you more than you love me. And of course, we hear this a lot now, like and love, but I thought it was really done very sweetly uh, towards the end of the film. And in a way, that's quite a, a subtle and important idea that uh, many times people get on our nerves and, 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 and we, they, they can't stand us, but yet we love them. And that's, I think, part of what you know, the idea here was, that we don't have to like everything about certain people, but we have to recognize that in many ways they are great. They are figures that push the envelope, the change things. And that's really part of what the film wants us to know about, about John L. Sull- about, about Sullivan and Corbett. That Corbett was far from perfect, a ham, but his, 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 his love of the sport and what he was about, whether this story is true or not, was essential for moving boxing into the era of, ni- of the 1940s, where, of course, it, it actually reigned supreme as 
despite baseball, what they do in the film is deal with the fact that there's somebody at ringside who is actually using his telegraph to, to, with the Morse code of the telegraph to send the messages of the fight. And of course, it lasted 21 rounds out of New Orleans all over America. So I think it, it does in, in, in so many small and large ways, it gives you a sense of where America was and how America has come to be where it is. And you really walk out of the theater, if you were watching it, very, very impressed and smiling and hoping that, you know, maybe this means something for Errol Flynn. Maybe he can do just more than you know, put on a holster or, or take a saber you know, out of its scabbard. So, Yitzchok, what, is, what would you like to counter with here? What's your counterpunch to, uh, to this? <laughs> well, you know, as you mentioned, you know, I... I found it fascinating to learn in, in Jewish history, you know, that American Jews who are from, you know, like we, we know the story of all for the boss and, and uh, that they actually, uh, they were big fans of, of, of boxing. That was, that was the, the uh, pastime. That was the spectator sport that was, you know, uh, you know, was, was adopted by the, Actually, by the Orthodox Jewish community, it was just it was popular to go see, which seems rather, you know, kind of strange to us today. I, I remember actually, um, I had a book one of my cousins, who's Lubavitcher Chassid, gave me um, like you know letters people wrote to Lubavitcher Rebbe, and someone was asking, I don't know, if, a bracha either. I don't know if he was a a uh, a boxer or a wrestler and, and the Rebbe wrote back you know that it horrifies me so much that you're even asking such a thing he was he was not happy about it although I understand there's I think uh I get I think currently a, a boxer who's a, a Lubav Shechassid who's a Shemr Shabbos so it's not totally out of style but it is something uh that that was but like you said there's so many films about boxing and then the history about boxing and actually uh, i read that shemp howard actually died in a in a car coming you know he had a heart attack coming back from a boxing match and he had actually starred in a lot of uh, short subjects of the joe palooka series but mentioning shemp we we know his his brothers mo and curly uh they were in the you know there was probably one of them most famous of the Three Stooges shorts with Curly was one called Punch Drunks. And I'm actually uh, kind of reviewing it now. And it's, a, it's been a little while since I'd seen it, but it's an interesting story how it how it started off that you have, and it was actually somewhat immortalized in a, in a Nintendo game where there was this, uh, one of the scenes of the, of the short was made into a, a game which was kind of it's a challenge. It is one of the most famous uh, Stooges yeah. uh, shorts. And this, of course, what happens is I think that you know, Curly is somehow turned into this incredibly aggressive, successful boxer, but he needs to hear Pop Goes the Weasel, right? Isn't that? Right. So they, they discover him. Mo is, is a boxing uh, uh, coach, uh, you know, and, and uh, manager. And he he's, has two of his guys who are, they're not doing so well and he's at a restaurant, and uh, Curly is a, is a waiter at the restaurant, and Larry comes in to offer the plate, you know, get him some more business, 
So he goes and uh, and he starts playing his violin, which Larry actually, he learned to play the violin because when he was a child, he had burned his arm with some very dangerous acid. And his father uh, saw he was about to drink this acid, would, would have killed him. His father knocked the acid out of his hand, but it, it winds up, wound up burning his hand. And the doctor said that the physical therapy that he should use to, to heal the arm that was burned was he should learn to play the violin. And that, that's how he became a violinist since he was a small child. And the, uh, <clears throat> so anyway, in this, in, in many of the episodes, he plays the violin, but here he's playing the violin in the, in the restaurant. He starts playing Pop Goes the Weasel. And somehow that triggers uh, the waiter, Curly. The three of them had no shaykhs before that in this episode. And then, uh, and Curly has some kind of a triggering event that, that he starts punching and, and acting very erratically. He doesn't know what's going on. And he and he knocks out these two world-class boxers. So then Mo is convinced that, you know, and, and he explains this. If when I hear that weasel tune that I just, I black out, I don't know what's going on. So, uh, you know, they, they have some more experiences that they're, uh, they see a, a young woman has a flat tire, and and again he, so he plays the pop goes the weasel, and it it, it gives uh, Curly some supernatural superhuman strength, and he's able to lift up the car so they can change the, the flat tire, and then finally they go to to be in the uh, in in the boxing ring, and Larry's uh, Larry's violin gets destroyed. So Larry has to run into town to go get a radio to try to uh, play Pop Goes the Weasel for for uh, Mo and, and Curly. And that's actually the scene that we mentioned uh, was made into a video game in, in the 1980s. It was a video game based on that scene where Larry is running back and forth to get the to get the uh, to get this this radio. So meanwhile, Curly is not prepared to fight. And he's getting he's getting beaten. And one of the cute things in the show is that there's this this kid who keeps throwing his his peanut. So you can incredibly it was nine almost ninety years ago, and um, it's still quite funny. I mean, and and, and it really a part of what's funny, of course, is the fact that Curly, <laughs> you know, unlike you know the very svelte and boxing like image that that Errol Flynn showed in Gentleman Jim, Curly isn't, doesn't exactly look like a bruiser, right? Um, you know, he was uh, short and squat, but uh, uh, how do you think Curly did in terms of the boxing scenes? Did you, <laughs> did it seem obviously very contrived? Did it look like he actually, you know, could be a terror if you got him into it? I mean, I think it's, uh, I, 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 again, I'm not, I'm not such a maven in boxing, so I don't know, you know, I, I think he he did a good job because you know he was a great pantomime, and that's really what it comes down to when you're making a a, a film like this is is the, the the pantomime abilities more than anything. I mean the truth is, you know I, I a film that I'm a big fan of, of course, is the, the King Kong. The history behind that was that also Willis O'Brien. It's like every single show we do eventually comes back to King Kong. Yeah, well, <laughs> King. We I, this is I think the thirty second. And of course, we've been doing this for a long time because this was our, our our undercard for to stir with love for about a year, and we've done thirty two shows here. I would say of of, of the 
you know, 60 or so programs that we've done. I think King Kong has showed up in about 50% of them. Like, go ahead. Yes. King Kong, Viter King Kong. Go ahead. So, so the, yeah. So Brian, you know, was, was, uh, what, he himself was a boxer and he based a lot of his animation techniques on, on his own boxing. And that's why, that's why I'm bringing it up is that, you know, there, it's an art to the, you know, the, to be able to, even if, if it's not authentic, but to, to be able to... No, play. no, obviously, you need choreography, you need it to be staged, and obviously, as, as, as Grisacy showed incredibly in Raging Bull, that the, the way the boxing <laughs> filmed is crucial. It's a violent thing, and, I, and, and people, in a way, don't want to look away from someone getting punched in the face. Um, so filming is 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 crucial uh it is a it is like an artist putting sketching something on on a palette it has to be done in a in a fashion that is suggestive of a real boxing match but also allows you to watch it and enjoy it um you know i think that the um no. Uh, I think part of the reason why the Stooges <laughs> is the uh, is is theirs because I know it's it it is so funny and I think it also taps into the zone boxers get into. Of course, you know, Curly when Curly becomes the boxing king, he sort of is not the same personality anymore. He's not the mild mannered um, sort of doofus that was the waiter, right? But I think that part of that really taps into bo- a boxer's success. Boxers weren't necessarily, um, you know, aggressive blowhards who would stamp on everything, but somehow they were able to channel through some sort of means the innate violent energy that all mankind has that we know we try to tame. Um, obviously, Cain and Hevel, we, you know, we talk about from the inception of human beings, we talk about the rivalry that leads to violence and possible death. I think part of the reason people were fascinated by boxing was because we took this primal energy and we were able to, uh, to uh, distill it and turn it into something that was somewhat of an art with rules. And I think that's part of the reason why people gravitated to it. And it's interesting, Yitzchak, because even if you weren't watching it, uh, the descriptions, whether they were done by telegraph, like in Gentleman Jim, or by radio, would have people glued to their radios listening to a description of uh, how the punches went back and forth. Obviously, it stirred in the imagination something primal and important, which I think is still there. Um, in ways that even a sword fight, which of course is another staple of films of the 30s and 40s, really doesn't manage. Uh, there aren't films today, uh, swashbuckling films have, have been shunted to the wayside, but there's going to be another boxing film. Right? Boxing films are not going to go out of vogue because the idea of of two people standing one against the other, you know, just with pure strength, brain and brawn, together i think that is something that that everyone is can be mesmerized by and i think that's part even though it's done in a very humorous way i think that uh you know punch drunks has part of that it's interesting to me to me what what stands out is the the power of the trigger because uh, you know that the and the irrational power of the trigger 
We have no idea why is it this song that triggers him, but we know it does. And that is something, you know, working, you know, with psychology, working with criminal justice and so forth, we see the the destructive powers of triggers and how, you know, uh, you know, here he was able to, I, I guess, uh, somewhat like, uh, with, you know, that the Chazal say if someone was noiled the Muslim Adamim, that they they could either be uh, a rotzeach or a moil or you know or, you know like that type of thing that he's able to somehow in some sense uh, in a in a socially acceptable way he was able to to take that that trigger and uh, sublimate it for something I don't know if, I would say it's positive necessarily but at least it's it's not. Uh, by, by, by the not, way, it's not, just antisocial, you know. Yes. Well, again, I think that there's there, there, we need to plumb the reason why this these this genre is so popular and still remains that way. Whether it's watching these old films or coming up with new takes on it, and and you can see as many of the films I mentioned in the beginning really indicate. What's interesting though, as I look at the, the description of this film, just checking my uh, my computer here, is that. Um, uh, you mentioned how Larry gets a radio. He actually, it's not a radio. He actually commandeers a politician's campaign truck. In the end, yeah. Well, yeah. first he gets the radio and the radio doesn't. doesn't right. And he drives the, the truck back to the arena. Um, and there's something really about that. So it was usually played on the streets on barrel organs with senseless lyrics, supposedly. Um, and, you know, they, they finally got some more wholesome lyrics to it. But I think it's a, uh, you know, what it means uh, I guess is open to, um, you know, yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a flat iron and a, the weasel is a hatter's tool and et cetera, but it definitely builds up to a certain excitement, right? You know, right. so here you have that, that, that sense of I'm dancing around with you and boom. And, you know, makes sense too. I also like the idea that, uh, that you know, the, it, it's it's such a popular ditty that it's used everywhere, and you know the the politicians are using it, and um, you know, you know, taking the truck through the wall. It's also interesting that this was the one of this. This was the only Stooges short that was preserved in the U- U.S. National Film Re- Registry uh, in the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. So. Mm-hmm. That tells you something about, um, about I guess, although it's definitely not considered highbrow, but it's probably it's probably one of the better choices you could have made for a Stooge film about about uh, about this sport. Well, it's look, you know, again, obviously people can turn around and and see many many uh, boxing types of stories you, you mentioned of course uh, how popular was benny leonard of course a famous jewish boxer um and and others um i do think that the you know we have become more sensitive to to the concussions you know whether it was muhammad ali is you know the the type of parkinson syndrome that affected him and other boxers as we've seen the way they become um so i, I think there's a an undercurrent of you know of disgust that you do find in our in our culture for this um i don't think people care that much today about boxing and i think they do see it as 
uh, sort of a, although again, the movies are coming out. I don't know if the sport itself um, is really that popular outside of, you know, a number of people in Vegas and some places. I don't know if it has that type of, I don't know if kids are growing up today in America with, um, with uh, posters of whoever the world heavyweight champion is today, um, maybe in some areas, but clearly it's, 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 it's become somewhat out of vogue. But I think um, you might not want to watch it, some part of you, but if you are stuck in front of the screen and it's playing, nine out of 10 people will probably stop and watch. Um, yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, again, I think it really goes back to who we are. Um, I mean, I, I used to remember as a child, it was the, was it Mike Tyson and Buster Douglas? Was it that the, what was the name of the, the boxer that they, and, and the, my mother said, Oh, you know, this is gonna, you know, he's gonna just get knocked out. And I was like, I don't even, I couldn't understand why it was this important. You know, Tyson I, and Tyson, in a way, was a type of boxer, I think, that, um, you know, people, you know, really went back. That was, um, in a, um, in a way, uh, a throwback. Tyson captured yeah. people's imagination. That was in 1990. But then, um, but then Douglas uh, knocked him out. Douglas knocked him out. Yes, and 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 Tyson then became really a whole, it became a whole story about why he never developed into what possibly could have been one of the greatest boxers of all time. Um, but again, Tyson's aggressiveness, Tyson's animalistic aspects that came out uh, as he continued to fight really probably had a lot to do with the undoing of, uh, or at least cementing the the coffin of the boxing as the popular sport, or could it ever be? Um, Ali, of course, was a very handsome and charismatic hero, and I think you know people were interested in him. George Foreman, in many ways, was very similar to Jim Corbett, James Corbett in terms of you know being a, a media star as well <laughs> anybody who's who's ever had the Foreman grill knows that you know he knew how to market himself so you know again it's always been um, a situation where you have to be light on I guess light on your feet and strong with your arms but also being able to exercise your mouth and to push your, your persona and be laced with enough charisma uh, that people will actually care for you. And I think that's that's really part of what is, I think, probably the recipe for some of these successful boxers, whether we're talking about Joe Lewis or Sugar Ray Leonard or Rocky Marciano or Rocky Graziano, of course, played by Paul Newman and um, one of his, I think, probably his breakout role, uh, Paul Newman, Somebody Up There Likes Me. Uh, you might remember that film also from the 1950s, another boxing film. Well, it's like listen. I think it's. I think the rounds are pretty much ended here. I hear the bell is going on. I'm willing to go down for the count on this one. Um, and uh, but a TKO in some way was achieved over here, as we as we suggest two possibilities that are out there from the 30s and 40s. And if it whets your appetite for more pugilistic um, excitement, there's plenty of places to turn. But I don't know if you're going to get anything as comedic. And as fun as either of these two uh, options. All right. <laughs> Watch your step, guys, on the way out. Be careful over there. Take care. Don't get caught up in the, in the ropes.
And uh, we'll catch you next time. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.